So good evening, everyone. Uh, Venerable Children is still traveling in Europe. So tonight we'll continue with our review on the perfection of concentration. So let's take a moment to settle in to our seats and our bodies as we set a motivation to guide our time together. So in preparing for this topic, uh, I was thinking about the life story of the Buddha, how when Prince Siddhartha left the palace, he met two meditation teachers who taught him how to attain incredible deep states of meditative stabilization, or the jhanas. And even though he had great skill and facility in doing this, up to the point where these teachers said, you know, please come and lead the community with me. Siddhartha was very clear that this was not the path to liberation. He knew that this would not lead to full awakening. And so he did not take up the request of these teachers. You know, he politely declined and said, you know, I have to keep searching for the true path. And as the story goes, you know, he went on his way, he tried ascetic practice, found that didn't work too. And eventually under the Bodhi tree, it was through uniting concentration together with insight into the nature of reality that the Buddha completely purified his mind and became fully awakened. So in reflecting on this, it reminded me that we don't cultivate concentration for its own sake. That even if our mind is capable of attaining these incredible powerful states of meditative stabilization, the most important thing is to use it as a tool and to combine it with insight into the nature of reality, to have this supported with bodhicitta, such that we are steering the full potential of our mind to be of benefit, not just to ourselves, but to all sentient beings. So with this broad view in mind, knowing where the practice of concentration lies on this path that we're working towards, We'll spend a bit of time this evening reviewing what we can do to help the mind to focus, to become this tool that makes us efficient in everything we do. We'll be able to put our mind on any virtuous object for as long as we wish. So I started out studying and practicing in the Chinese uh, Chan and Theravada traditions where a lot of the teachings on concentration revolve around focusing on the breath. There are all these teachings on overcoming the five hindrances. And the goal there, I think, often is talked about in terms of attaining stages of jhana, or meditative stabilization. So you know, I had some hazy sense of what concentration was about. So it was only at my first uh, concentration retreat here at the Abbey, and then later during the winter retreat where we did the four establishments of mindfulness, that I learned that there's actually a Tibetan presentation of meditation in, I mean, in the Galupa system, and that it's very detailed, 
And it talks about attaining a state called serenity, which comes just before the jhanas. And I found this extremely exciting <laughs> and amazing that, you know, yogis could actually describe all these levels of the mind as you progress in concentration, and that they were so compassionate to lay them out. Right? Kind of like to say, okay, this is what you're going to see here. These are the problems that are going to happen here. This is what you can do. I was like, wow. You know, and it made me feel like, oh, maybe this is possible. Yeah, in some corner of my mind. I always thought, you know, jhana, you have to be in the forest for how long? Um, people have to serve your retreat or, you know, I just thought this. And then looking at my own very dull, hazy, unconcentrated mind, I was like, forget it, it's not going to happen. So to see these, you know, step-by-step -step approach laid out. And it said, you know, serenity is the minimum you need to combine with uh, insight, to completely purify the mind, right? To realize uh, emptiness and overcome the afflictions. So again, you know, my efficiency-driven mind, like, oh, okay, that's the minimum. Maybe we can go for that. So I did spend uh, my first winter retreat here reading this, uh, walking through walls. Uh, it's Jeffrey Hopkins' translation of uh, Geshe Gendun Lojo's description of the Tibetan uh, presentation of meditation. And after reading this, I thought, maybe after my first winter retreat, I will walk through walls. I, at some corner of my mind, seriously believed that. I thought, I will walk through the wall to see venerable children at the interview. Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> so that's the benefit of studying the Dharma. It makes you realistic. <laughs> and maybe a bit humble. Who knows? Um, and at least now, when I look back at the nine stages, uh, it just gives me a clear sense of where my mind is. And not to be discouraged, but to know, okay, that's where I am now, and this is what I need to practice. So uh, before we jump into that, I wanted to talk briefly about some of the sources I referred to, because, you know, this is not a topic I have much direct experience on. Uh, so I looked a lot at uh, two books by Leah Zahler, who is one of Jeffrey Hopkins' students. She focused very much uh, on this uh, the Tibetan Buddhist presentation in the Galupa school of the stages of concentration. So the two books are The Meditative States in Tibetan Buddhism, and the other is called Study and Practice of Meditation. Yeah. And I also looked a lot at this one, uh, Jeffrey Hopkins' Walking Through Walls, yeah, a presentation of Tibetan meditation. And again, you know, these books are part of this, I think it's an incredible project by Jeffrey and his students. They're trying their best to translate many of the root texts that are used in the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and also the commentaries by contemporary Tibetan Buddhist practitioners. So, you know, um, Leia Zala relies very heavily on commentaries by Lati Rinpoche and also Geshe Gendun Lodro. Those are the two main ones that they, she relies on for this section and also Demma Lodro Rinpoche. So these are all Tibetan scholar yogis who are lecturing at University of Virginia in the 70s. So I think that's really rare in academia where you get, you know, they're not just working on the root text, but they want to hear from practitioners, like, how does it work? You know, what is it like in your experience? Yeah, so that's the, some of the resources I drew on. And just to go back further, though, like, what is the scriptural source for all these teachings that we're getting in this very condensed presentation in the Lamrim, right, which in many Lamrim texts, starting from uh, Lama Tsongkhapa's Great Treatise and now the Gomchen Lamrim, um, in this section, they'll always teach on the five faults and eight antidotes and the nine stages of sustained attention. So according to Leia Zahler, she points out that actually in Atisha's Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment, which is the model for all these Lamrim texts, he actually doesn't talk very much about 
the attainment of serenity. And it was his later followers in what is called the textual lineage of the Kadampa school who brought these sets of teachings together from various scriptures and, brought and synthesized them. So the scriptures that are drawn on, first the five faults and eight antidotes come from Maitreya's discrimination of the middle way and the extremes. And the context there is Maitreya is explaining how a practitioner meditates on the four truths for the Aryas. And the nine stages of sustained attention are mentioned in Asanga's Grounds of Hearers and Summary of Manifest Knowledge, where he talks about them in terms of stopping the faults um, that come up. And they also come from Maitreya's Ornament for the Mahayana Sutras, where Maitreya talks about how to improve our meditative stabilization and increase our good qualities. So again, I just thought, how incredibly kind. I'm not going to read these texts in Sanskrit, I don't think, in this life, right? But these Tibetan masters have translated them, practiced them, and found a way to synthesize them in their various textbooks. So we kind of have the pith that we can try and put into practice. And Geshe Gendun Lodro says, you know, why, why do we present these two together? He says, anyone who abandons the five faults and cultivates the eight antidotes will pass through the nine stages of sustained attention. And then the other is true as well. If you want to pass through those nine stages, then you have to abandon the five faults and cultivate the eight antidotes. So it seems like they go hand in hand. So I mean, I know Venerable first taught the five and the eight, and then the nine stages. Those, that's one way of presenting it. And in Geshe Gendun Lodro's presentation, he does them side by side. So, you know, there are many ways to look at this material. You can see what works for you. Um, and because, to be honest, uh, this material can seem very theoretical or dry sometimes. It's like, I don't really know what you're talking about. I don't have direct experience from stage four onwards, or maybe even three. We'll look at that together. Um, again, I want to just appreciate how the Tibetan masters were very creative. Because one of the key ways of teaching this is um, there's this very famous tanka of the nine stages of sustained attention. And so that's one of the teaching aids we'll look at today. I can imagine maybe they did this for the monks. You know, there are a lot of young monks, and you're trying to teach this material, or nuns too. And they're all like, oh, what's going on? So you have this great tanka that shows um, the whole process in terms of symbols. Um, so I made this worksheet <laughs> that we are going to try out. <laughs> so it's showing the illustrations of all the different stages. It's been sent out to people online as well. I think it's also on Facebook. So we'll take a couple of minutes. You know, I don't know if we have pens. Maybe someone can help me with the pen distribution if we need it. Um, and we'll just... Oh, don't worry. I have the answer key here, so you can't see it now. <laughs> so we'll just spend a couple of minutes and try and figure out what order these uh, images go in. And they each they represent the nine stages of sustained attention, and one of them is what happens after that. So just uh, give it a try. So what did people have for stage one, the very first one? Which diagram? Uh, I. Yeah, out of control, right? No, that's not the name of the stage. It is uh, placing the mind. <laughs> so usually in the tankas, and it's not actually in this one. Um, there's a house next to the monk. Yeah, it shows actually a monk leaving a house, stepping onto a path and crossing a bridge. Right? And the monk is chasing after an elephant and the elephant is following a monkey. 
Yeah, so that's usually the depiction of stage one. So the monk here, who do you think he represents? Meditator. Yeah, the meditator. And it's the first time us as the meditator are withdrawing our mind from external objects. So I think that's represented by the house. Yeah, and turning the mind towards something internal. And in the meditator's hands are two items. Right, there's a rope representing, any guesses? Yes, mindfulness mm-hmm. and the hook. Introspective. introspective awareness yeah so those are two tools are they of any use right now <laughs> not really because we're running after an elephant that represents ignorance the mind yeah the mind itself is represented here by the elephant so why do you think they chose the elephant to symbolize the mind any thoughts it's yeah it's really powerful right but right now it's uncontrolled. Yeah. So they said a wild elephant is dangerous to all animals. <laughs> the untamed mind causes all suffering. But when the elephant is tamed, apparently it obeys its master better than any animal. It can perform any action, however difficult. Yeah. So we're chasing after a very powerful, trying to put out, tame a very powerful object to achieve our purposes. And this elephant is led by a monkey. Any thoughts what the monkey might represent? Yeah, it's called scattering. Yeah. So it's going to any kind of object, just whatever is outside of it. It can be virtuous, can be non-virtuous, it's just not on the object. <laughs> yeah. So this stage, it's said, is attained through what's called the power of hearing. It's the first of the six powers, which are the six capacities that we as meditators need to attain serenity. And it's through hearing or reading teachings about how to place the mind on the object that we start to identify this object. And for me, when I heard that, it just reminds me of how important it is for us to study before we engage in long periods of meditation. I mean, otherwise, you don't even know what the object is. Yeah, so Venerable pointed that out. With if If us as beginners, we pick very difficult objects like emptiness or the mind itself, uh, we won't even reach stage one. Yeah, it's like, oh, I can't find it. <laughs> right. And also, if, stud- if we study and we consult with our teacher, they may choose an object that helps with afflictions that we're trying to work with. So this first stage um, is just about identifying the object. You've turned away from, from the external distractions of the world. You're trying your best to keep the mind there. And at this stage, the, the object is not clear. The mind is filled with a lot of discursive thought. And Geshe Gendon Lodro actually says, what appears is not the object of meditation, but other types of conceptions. But he says, it's not that there's more distraction than usual, it's that we are identifying the distraction for the first time. Yeah. So I thought that was a very kind way to think about it. You know, sometimes we sit and you're like, oh, my mind, it's hopeless. It's like, no, you're starting to hear the noise for the first time. This is normal. And Lati Rinpoche, for people who like numbers and things, he says, the mind stays on the object for as long as it takes to count 21 breaths. That is the uh, performance indicator. <laughs> you can see for yourself <laughs> if that's the case. Um, in that tanka, you don't see this, but often um, at this first stage, there's a huge flame. You'll see the flame along the way too. Um, any thoughts on what it could represent? Desire. Nope. <laughs> Other ideas? Wisdom, anger, anger. energy, Energy? yeah, that's close, yeah, energy. So here the fire helps us to see what's going on with the four types of mental engagement. 
yeah, which is how the mind's relating to the object. Yeah. So here at this stage, you need a lot of effort. I mean, specifically, it refers to effort here, the fire. So you'll notice the flame starts to die down as we go along this, uh, the tanka. So at this stage, huge flame. Yeah. There's, it's called effortful engagement. That's how our mind is relating to the object. You have to pull your mind really tight, hold it on the object. In some commentaries, they say it's almost like you have to forcefully put the mind there. Although I'm not such a fan of the word force. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no, it's not about that. Yeah, but it just takes a lot of effort to notice and try and put the mind there. So to touch on some of the faults that come up at this stage, yeah, the main faults that we deal with here are, do people remember? <laughs> yeah, the first is laziness. Yeah, and the other is forgetting the instruction. So those are the main things we have to deal with at the first two, up to three stages. So it said that at this stage, our job really is to learn to identify laziness and actually apply the antidotes. And when we talk about laziness here, it's specific to cultivating concentration. Not, not just you know, laziness in general that can apply to many of the virtuous things that we do, but here specific to cultivating concentration. So do we remember the three types of laziness that can come up? Procrastination. Yeah, procrastination, often the first one. They call it a laziness of neutral activities. Also, so like the example given in this context, it's like you're meditating and you decide you have to get up and sew. <laughs> so, then, well, you know, your socks have holes, right? And you're sitting, so you just have to stop and go sew. And it said that this is actually the most dangerous kind of laziness because it doesn't seem non-virtuous. You know, it's like, oh, it's just stuff I have to do. So, but it's still taking you away from your practice, whether or not you realize it. Yep. And the second kind, someone mentioned discouragement. No, the second is usually... Hmm? Yes, busyness. Yeah, attachment to well. Here they mention specific to um, concentration. It's listed as non-virtuous activities. Maybe busyness might be the first one too. You think? Yeah, procrastination. Yeah, but non-virtuous activities are what are mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So here it's thoughts of hatred coming up. This is the example, like, in, you know, you're trying to sit and all you can think about is 20 years ago, someone harmed you and metamorphosis. Yeah, the whole session passes, you're plotting revenge, you're stewing and hurt, and then ding! <laughs> okay. <laughs> so not realizing that's a distraction or that's laziness going on. You're, you're um, totally committed to your revenge or whatever. <laughs> so a bit easier to spot than the non-virtuous, I mean, sorry, the neutral ones. And the last is laziness of inadequacy or discouragement. So here it's specifically thinking, you know, you can't attain concentration of any kind. So why bother? And so on. Yeah. So I think often our teachers remind us that already we have this mental factor of concentration. All of us do. We are able to concentrate on some things. It's just not necessarily within our control at this stage. So we practice. And out of the eight antidotes, four of them deal with laziness, which shows you how important and um, difficult it is to overcome this one. Um, do we remember the antidotes to laziness here? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first is faith or confidence. And I think, and here again, specifically thinking about the good qualities of concentration, reflecting on the benefits of doing it, of attaining it, and also the disadvantages of not trying to do so. And um, I think 
Jeffrey Hopkins, I think, mentioned this in men- uh, Meditation on Emptiness. I just think it's so cool, like, how a lot of the Buddhist teachings work. Like, if you think deeply enough about the benefits of something, your mind will naturally move in that direction. I just like that idea. Or it's, it's, it's in the easy path, too, I think, where it says, ah, oh, it's because I didn't think hard enough about precious human rebirth. That's why I have, again, you know, fallen into samsara. <laughs> As in, you know, like, thinking deeply about the benefits of something, you will use it very well, is what I'm getting from it. So, yeah, so if we spend time through our study and our reflection thinking, you know, why should I even want to cultivate concentration? Why is it beneficial? Why do I want to move my mind in this direction? Then very naturally, we'll have confidence or faith in this practice. We will have aspiration. That's the second antidote. It just naturally comes, right? Because you see the benefits of something, then you yearn to attain it, and you want to attain something, you put effort. So that's the third one, the effort. So it's said that at this stage, and the second stage too, we have to rely on our faith, our aspiration, and our effort towards cultivating concentration. The fourth antidote, there seems to be some debate around this, you know, whether or not it's actually an antidote. Uh, because pliancy right, is attained with serenity. It's like you've got the end product already, then it comes. So how is it an antidote? Yeah, I don't have pliancy at stage one and two. It's not going to happen. So Lati Rinpoche says, yeah, maybe... Mm, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an actual antidote only attained with serenity. And then Geshe Gendun Lojo points out, well, it's a benefit that arises from the first three antidotes. And you can think of it as an antidote in terms of a benefit. As in you think, oh, how wonderful. My mind will be completely pliant when I have serenity. So that's a nice um, byproduct. Uh, eventually, I'll get it. So let's do this practice. Yeah. So, yeah, those are the four. It's said that only with f- uh, pliancy is laziness completely eradicated. And the next, we have forgetting the instruction or forgetfulness. Right? So here, this could happen in two ways. First, the object of observation completely disappears. Have people experienced that? <laughs> And it just sounds so strange, like you're trying and then it just disappears. <laughs> I don't know. No? Yes? Well, you notice it a little while later. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's too, yeah, maybe it's too late. Yeah, yeah. I was like thinking like, hmm? then the bo- Buddhist body just goes. Right? The other one I, I feel happens more often, the mind goes dark. Yeah, it's something like laxity. Suddenly it's like, right, very heavy or, and then very quickly you're like, so that's one, one way it manifests. And the other is you're just distracted to another object. So that's more like, agitation yeah so all this happens at the first few stages and the antidote to this is uh, not yet mindfulness. yeah mindfulness and venerable is careful here to point out that here we're not talking about mindfulness the way it's popu- uh, popularly known right like as bare awareness you're kind of just paying attention to sensations or whatever here we are mindful of the meditation object we've studied we know what we're looking for, and we are mindful of that object. So we're bringing the mind back to it and trying our best to hold the mind on that object. Um, so the third of the faults yeah, corresponds to what Venerable Tarpa was mentioning. And I want to talk about it here briefly, even though it only really comes up for us much later in the path. So that's the failure to identify laxity and agitation. Yeah, so sometimes Theravada uh, translators use the term restlessness 
or in Jeffrey's books, he uses excitement. But in her teaching, Venerable was emphasizing agitation as her uh, preferred term. So we can see what works for us. Yeah. And I wanted to point it out because it's actually represented in the tanka here. Um, the dark color of the elephant is what represents laxity. Right? So it's the internal distraction that destroys the intensity of clarity when our mind is concentrated. Yeah. And the dark color of the monkey represents agitation, which is the mind moving to objects of desire. And I just thought that was so clever because if you see the color tankas, yeah, the dark color, the elephant's gray and the monkey's brown, which is their normal color, right? So you don't even notice that it's a problem. Laxity and agitation is like, yeah, it's just part of my experience. You don't even notice it at this stage. It's just how my mind is. That's the color of elephants. That's the color of monkeys. Yeah. So yeah, later on, then the meditator starts to see, hmm, this is actually taking me away from my goal. So yes, the antidote here is introspective awareness. Um, yeah, but we'll talk more about that later. Okay, so that's stage one. A lot going on. <laughs> Just trying to turn the mind inwards and you know, find and stay on the object. Okay, so now we get to stage two. Uh, which picture did people identify as stage two? Yeah, B, right. So we see that the meditator is getting a bit closer to the elephant and the monkey, right. So here at stage two is called continual placement, right. The mind can stay on the object for a bit longer. Lati Rinpoche says, it is as long, the mind can stay on the object for as long as it takes to recite one mala of Om Mani Peme Hong at a normal speed. <laughs> Back at about one and a half minutes. <laughs> So you can go time yourself. <laughs> yeah. But the point here, I think, is that we can actually start to see when we're distracted and when we're on the object. That in itself is a powerful insight. You're not so carried away all the time. So you see that on the head of the elephant and the monkey, there's a little white spot right, showing that there's a slight reduction in laxity, uh, laxity and agitation. And the, we're starting to, to get the hang of this a bit. But the monkey is still leading the elephant by the nose, as you can see. And along the way, you'll see these uh, objects, which are meant to represent sense objects. And so in the second picture, you see above the monk, there's two you know, funny-looking ball-like things. That's fruit, I think. And then there's a huge cord next to him that's a ribbon or cloth. Any thoughts on what that might represent? Yeah, they're all objects of attachment. Yeah, and then Venerable Seppo is saying, yeah, the cloth is tactile, tactile objects, tactile senses. And the fruit, what do you think? Taste. Yeah, taste. objects of taste. Yeah. So I don't know if there's significance in the placement of the objects. You'll see they keep coming up, right? But it's basically saying that at, the, at these stages, that's what the mind is being pulled towards, all the sense objects. That's what the monkey is leading the elephant to go towards. So at this second stage, um, the meditator has attained the power of reflection. That's what we've generated. We've not only heard the teachings and identified the object, we've thought repeatedly about the teachings. And through our repeated reflection, we can stabilize the mind for a short while. But same, we're still struggling with laziness, forgetfulness, and you'll see the size of the fire is still pretty big. So quite a lot of effort still required at this stage. Okay. So now we go to stage three. 
what picture did people identify? H. H. Yeah. So good news, right? H. <laughs> the meditator has the rope around the elephant's neck. Hooray, hooray. So this is um, showing that the meditator has generated the power of mindfulness. Yeah, the rope of mindfulness is finally around the mind. And here we can recognize distraction once it happens, and we can put our mind back on the object. And now we have a rabbit. Yeah, we'll talk about the rabbit. Yeah, new problems come up. <laughs> but it's very cool, uh, cute. You know, you see, that, so there are these little round things above the monkey, right? So those are symbols, C-Y-M-B-A-L-S. What do you think they represent? <laughs> Yeah, music, attachment to objects of sound. But you know this? Yeah, symbols, C-Y-F-B-A-L-S. <laughs> but, no, they're not mushrooms or pacifiers. <laughs> I was like, pacifiers? <laughs> no, <laughs> symbols. Um, so you notice all the animals, even though there's a rabbit, are looking away from the symbols. Yeah. So that represents that. And they're turning away from sense objects. Yeah, they're starting to look at the meditator for a change. Yeah, oh, finally you're starting to have some control over the mind. Yes, you can pull it back with much more skill. So now the fire is a bit smaller. So here is where the second type of mental engagement comes up. It's called interrupted engagement. And it will last all the way to stage 7. So now the mind's not in effortful engagement anymore. Yeah, it's interrupted. So sometimes you can pull it back, but sometimes it's still going off on its own thing. So now let's talk about the rabbit. <laughs> so why do you think there's a rabbit that pops up now? Finally, you got hold of the mind and there's something else going on. What could it represent? Did you say the rabbit, that the monkey was excitement? Uh, no, scattering. So maybe it's a rabbit excitement? No. No. It's on your mind. Yeah, it's riding on the laxity. Yeah, no, well, no, it's even subtler than that. So it pops up here because the mind's starting to turn inwards, and that's when subtle laxity can come up. Yeah, so the, the rabbit represents subtle laxity. Yeah. So finally, you start to, to notice coarse and subtle laxity. Before this, like I said, you know, you forget it. You're dealing with other much bigger problems. So now the rabbit appears and they say it picked the rabbit because like a rabbit that hides well. This can be mistaken for progress. So stage three seems to be one that is a fraught with, you know, you got somewhere and now a lot of problems come up. Um, so Lati Rinpoche talks about the difference between coarse and subtle laxity. It seems to be a very complicated topic. I'm just going to read you what I read, not that I can actually tell you what it means. So coarse laxity, he says, is the ability to stay on the object, but the mind itself that's apprehending the object is not clear. It can experience darkness like a shadow. So that's the coarse part. But when we get to subtle laxity, the mind is stable and clear. And so the object is stable, the mind's clear, but it lacks intensity. Yeah, whatever that means, I don't know. Yeah, stable and clear, but the, maybe the appearance of the object's not so intense. It says the mind's mode of apprehension is loose. Yeah, so often people mistake this for actually having some deep concentration because the object is so stable and clear, yeah, but you don't know that it's not intense. Yeah, so that's a tricky piece for the meditator. Um, Geshe Gendun Lojo also points out that cost laxity is ethically neutral. Yeah. And subtle laxity is virtuous because there is stability on the object of observation. 
And they think of, I guess they have to point this out because lethargy is said to be non-virtuous. Yeah, it can come up whether your mind is directed outwards or inwards. It's just that heaviness that comes and leads to sleep. Yeah, and it can be, um, yeah, yeah. It's a non-virtuous thing that's uh, associated with ignorance. So laxity is not the, that's not the case. It's either ethically uh, neutral or virtuous. So it's a problem that only comes up when you actually have some degree of focus. So some of the causes of laxity are the mind being overly withdrawn. Um, your intensity of meditative stabilization weakening, or you're starting to get sleepy or uh, lethargic. What was the second one? Um, it said, intensity of meditative stabilization lessens. Yeah, I guess, yeah, your focus weakens. Or So I think starting from here, right, you really have to start paying attention to the third fault, right, which we mentioned, not identifying laxity or agitation when it comes up. And also that's tied up with the fourth fault, which is not applying antidotes, even when you see them. So th that's when these faults start to become a problem. We have less laziness, less forgetfulness, and then now we have to learn to identify laxity and agitation and you know, put the antidotes into practice. So some of the antidotes to laxity right, include um, tightening the mode of apprehension. It's like tuning an instrument, making the object bright, focusing on its details, or thinking about um, relevant Lamrim topics like the precious human rebirth, qualities of the three jewels, bodhicitta. Right? Or you can stop the session, wash your face, take a walk, rest. <laughs> it's another one. Um, and for agitation, we can loosen the mind. Right? So agitation, the mind's too tight on the object. It's starting to, to you know. So you can loosen the mind. Uh, and it said you can meditate on death, impermanence, the suffering of cyclic existence, or focus on the navel or the breath. So would actually loosen the mind and stop. I don't know. Yeah. Oh no, I think it's too. It's the agitation here. It's like it's drawn to an object of pleasure or or uh, excitement. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's so the difference they pointed out was scattering could be drawn to non-virtuous or virtuous objects, but agitation specifically, is your mind's drawn to objects of attachment. Yeah, so that's why thinking of death, impermanence, helps to calm it down. And what I thought was interesting was Geshe Gendron Lodro points out some of the major hindrances that can come up here. He said, sometimes meditators cannot overcome laziness and forgetfulness despite applying the antidotes. So many of them can may give up at this stage. He said, sharp people can do their own analysis, but otherwise you should seek help from your spiritual mentor at this stage. I, just, I was just trying to imagine maybe people who have gone into huts in retreat, right? They're like, oh, now they have to come out and go find their teacher. Or, so it's important to be close to a teacher when we engage in our meditation practice, especially in cultivating concentration. Um, he also points out this is the point where predominant afflictive emotions can come up and block our progress because they may not have been manifest earlier because the mind was so distracted. But now that the mind turns inwards, he said, what you see what comes up in the mind is whatever is strongest in it. So the example he gives is someone who is accustomed to anger at this point may not be able to advance because every time they cultivate serenity, it's huge. And all they see is the anger that's coming up. Whereas if they were not so focused on their internal object, the mind's just distracted so the anger doesn't come up. So I just thought that was an interesting kind of warning, I guess. Yeah, And maybe helpful in that... Um, 
like in my first few retreat experiences, you turn the mind inward and you start seeing afflictions or deeper levels of them and I, I would freak out. It's like, whoa, what's going on? So to be like, no, that's normal. You're just starting to, because your mind's starting to focus, you're seeing subtler and subtler levels of the afflictions. So, you know, then it's time to start applying the antidotes. So he said here, the meditator may need to put away the object that they're focusing on to focus on the antidotes to the afflictions, especially if they come up very strongly at this stage. Yeah. So again, very helpful to be near your teacher and also to study. Yeah, otherwise, I think you might, I don't know, freak out, right? Or think I'm such a bad person. That's what's in my mind. <laughs> Let's give up. So, yeah. All right. What, what's the name of Oh, stage three. I have here repeated placement. Repeated placement, putting it back again and again. That's after interrupted engagement. No, interrupted engagement arises here. Yeah, so the first stage was <laughs> placing the mind, right? Then continual placement, and then now repeated placement. So now we get to stage four. Which picture that people have for this one? D. D. Yeah. This is called close placement. I guess symbolized by the monk being much closer to the elephant now. Right. So here you are familiar with the object. You can set your mind on it. And here you have generated a strong power of mindfulness. Right. So the mind starts to really become stable on the object. And it says, from here on, the meditator no longer loses the object. How wonderful. I just can't imagine what it might be like. Yeah, so that's a clear sign of stage four. You sit and you're not going to lose the object anymore. So, it, what, so what you're dealing with from here on is various types of laxity and agitation, something quite subtle. You know, mind is stable and clear, but not intense. Yeah. So Geshe Gendon Lodro gets into like all the possibilities that, you know, aspects of the object so very subtle things that I don't quite understand but I'm guessing as an experienced meditator they would be able to tell right from but yeah you just don't lose the object anymore so it said it said that um, even cause agitation and the coarser form of cause laxity are no longer present yeah so you see that the elephant and the monkey are half white half dark right yeah. and it said that um, cause laxity Cause ag agitation involves completely losing the object. Yeah, so that's gone. You'll, you don't lose the object anymore from here. And Lati Rinpoche says, subtle agitation is like water moving under ice. So the meditator does not lose the object, but a corner of the mind has come under the influence of discursiveness, and a pleasant object is about to appear. <laughs> that's very subtle, I don't know. Clearly I'm only at the taken away by the object right so it's they're starting to so it's like water moving under ice <laughs> that's how he describes it well, I think still present yeah there are some different presentations of this I was wondering about this too I decided this one that I'm going with is from Leia Zala's study of practice and meditation I wonder if it's a textbook thing you know, these masters are all presenting these from different uh, Tibetan Buddhist college textbooks. So there could be some difference here. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, I think so. I sat here for a long while and I thought, okay, let's go with the Leazala presentation that's trying to synthesize them. Yeah. So anyhow, um, I thought I'd talk a bit about the causes of agitation, which are also um, quite interesting. 
he points out that uh, agitation can be caused by haughtiness, yeah, which is a heightening of the mind within an attachment to one's own qualities. So examples of these qualities include we can start to get haughty about our class or social status, our body. And the, the trickiest one for the meditator is getting haughty about having heard a great deal or being capable of engaging in a lot of thought. So he said this is risky because you have to study a lot to meditate. And then as you are meditating and you reflect on scripture as an antidote, you start to think, I know so much. Wow. <laughs> so, or, oh, I'm so focused these days. <laughs> you know, so the mind's really starting to go off. I'm imagining it may come up like that. <laughs> That's the example given. It may arise when meditating on scripture as an antidote. Yeah. So, yeah, so other things we can get haughty about are our youth or power or authority. So I guess it reminds me of the story Venerable often tells about how you can go into the mountains to meditate and still have a lot of, um, you know, attachment to reputation or this is haughtiness coming up, right? Where you're like, I wonder what people think of me as a great meditator. <laughs> you're, well, not focused. <laughs> yeah, so that's all the kinds of agitation that can come up along the way. And I think here still the sense objects can have an influence. We see a perfume conch representing, what do you think? Smell. Yeah, objects of smell. And then now we come to stage five. Yeah. Which picture did people have from that? F. 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 Yeah, so this is called taming. For the first time, we see the monk is in front of the elephant. Taming. Taming. The monkey is behind, so we know who's in charge now. So here the mind is disciplined and tamed. It can stay on the object almost continuously. And the monkey is now behind the elephant, right? Following the meditator. And all the, all the animals are looking at the meditator now. So you notice that the meditator has a hook on the elephant's head. So what does that tell us? Introspective yeah, so here that's where the meditator has generated the fourth power of introspective awareness. So I think you, you start to get a lot of facility with identifying, you know, when's laxity coming up, when's agitation coming up. Yeah, so he has the hook firmly on the elephant's uh, trunk. And it's said here that the most obvious feature of this stage is the great danger of subtle laxity. So it's starting from the fourth stage onwards, the mind becomes very withdrawn. And that can be one cause of laxity. So you don't see that in this tanka, but in many of them, um, they'll show a white monkey on a tree that's climbing on the on a trying to reach for fruit but facing away from the path. Yeah. So you'll, I'll send around a color tanka after this, but that's that's not here. But this white monkey climbing a tree away from the path uh, symbolizes subtle laxity in the form of virtuous thoughts that can come up but are not the actual object of meditation. So the example given is you, you are focusing on the Buddhist body and then thoughts of love and compassion arise. Yeah, but that's not the object. But again, we can be very taken by these thoughts or feel you know, a lot of joy at that, but you're off the object. So it's said that you pass from stage five to six within the same session. I'm guessing here you start to be able to sit for long periods with focus. So that was taming. So now at six, it's called pacifying. What did people have for pacifying? A. 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 Yeah. So we see that the meditator doesn't even have to look at the elephant anymore. Right? The monk's right in front, leading them along. 
Right? So it said that at this stage, all dislike for meditative stabilization is overcome, and the meditator is completely certain that distractions should be eliminated. Yeah. So here we see a mirror. I think that's a mirror above the elephant, which represents visual. Yeah, objects of sight. Yeah. So they're turning away from all these um, sense objects. And it said that at this stage, it's very easy for the meditator to apply introspective awareness. So it doesn't even need to put the hook on the elephant anymore, but those tools are still there. Yeah. Anytime they're needed, you know, he's still holding on to the elephant with the rope. And you notice someone is gone. Rabbit. Yeah, the rabbit's gone. <laughs> so it said that you may have overcorrected for subtle laxity in the last stage. Yeah, so the rabbit's gone, no more subtle laxity. Yeah, it doesn't come up anymore. Yeah. But if you've overcorrected for it, there is great danger of subtle agitation. Yeah. The mind can be overly heightened. What's the darkness of the rabbit symbolized I don't know. I didn't say. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just to match the animals? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So now we come to stage seven. What did people have for that? Yeah. So this is called thoroughly pacifying. And you notice the meditator is empty-handed. Yeah, he doesn't even have the rope or the hook anymore. So here it's called thoroughly pacifying because the mind is actually completely pacified. The meditator can stand behind the, ele the, the elephant. It allows the mind to rest naturally on the object. And you'll see that there's no more fire. Right, so no effort is needed at this stage to observe the object. So, <laughs> ironically, I guess, it said that you generate the fifth power here, the fifth power of effort. As in it's fully, I guess, it's, it, you attain that power so you don't have to put so much effort anymore. into. like confidence. No, not quite. No, no it's, it's the actually having to, um, I guess, generate energy in the mind to put it on the object. Now it's become... Um, easy. Yeah. So it said that the power of effort will eliminate subtle auxiliary afflictions and discursive thought. It says subtle laxity and agitation can still arise, but it's very easy for the meditator to apply antidotes or to suppress them. But at this stage, a non-application of the antidote can still happen. And one benefit of coming up to this stage is that your, your progress will actually affect your time outside of meditation. It said that the afflictions still arise, but the meditator very quickly applies antidotes to subdue them without getting involved. Mm, and there's some debate between the um, different schools, I think, about whether laziness can arise at this stage. Yeah. So Lati Rinpoche says yes, yeah, because the laxity and agitation can still arise. So we see the monkey is still there, so agitation can still come up at a very subtle level, and the hind legs of the elephant are dark. Yeah, so there's still a little bit of laxity that can come up. So those can flower into laziness. Yeah, but Geshe Gendun Lojo says, um, even though there's no clear boundary, he thinks there cannot be laziness at this stage because you have the power of mindfulness and introspection and now you have the power of effort. So I don't know. <laughs> These are just some <laughs> debates they have, I guess, about what's possible and what's not. <laughs> okay, let me go on to stage eight. Yeah, picture E. And it's called making single-pointed. So it's kind of a nice gesture. Yeah? The meditator is, the monk is in front, and he's 
just pointing gently with his hand to the elephant, like, go here. So I think that symbolizes the how at this stage, you only need a little bit of effort at introspection at the start of the session. After which, laxity and agitation don't arise anymore. And the mind just remains one-pointed on the object of observation. So I guess the hand maybe is the little bit of effort that needs to happen, right? But the elephant just follows. The monk doesn't even have to look at the elephant. And the elephant's completely white, and you see that the monkey has disappeared. Yeah, it says the power of effort is fulfilled here. The elephant just comes and obeys. So from this stage onwards, it's said that you have uninterrupted engagement. Yeah, so you have the... But these are, that's how the mind's relating to the object. Yeah, at first with a lot of effort, right, effortful engagement, then interrupted engagement from stage two to seven. And then here at stage eight, it's uninterrupted. It says the mind just stays on the object through the power of effort without interruption from laxity or agitation. So it's said that here's where the fifth fault can arise, which is over-application of the antidote. Because there's, you still need a bit of effort here at the start of the session, it said the meditator may not realize that laxity and agitation no longer come up. So you might apply an antidote when it's not needed. And they say a similitude of this fault can occur earlier. So for example, your meditation is actually going quite well, but you start to doubt whether it, you, know, you just apply an antidote when you don't have to. That's the idea. And apparently you can pass from stage 8 to stage 9 in a single session. So now we come to stage 9. Which picture do people have? G. Yeah. So this is called placement in equipoise. And this is the highest attainment of concentration within the desire realm. So it's a lot like serenity, but it's not fully qualified serenity. So apparently the three features that serenity has are stability, clarity, and spontaneity. I guess in terms of the mind observing the object. So those are already present here, but they're not fully developed. I think, nonetheless, your meditation is flowing very naturally. So that's why you have here the fourth type of mental engagement, which is called spontaneous engagement. There's just a wish to meditate is sufficient. <laughs> yeah, how nice. Yeah. It's like, oh, hi, yay. <laughs> the monk meditates, and we see the elephant is sleeping. The mind's just resting on the object. And the single-pointedness continues for a long time. And up to this stage, your sense consciousnesses are totally absorbed and do not respond to external stimuli anymore. Um, it's said here that the meditator has the sixth power of complete familiarity with the above powers. You know, I don't know if people have read this before too, right? Like you used to wonder like, wow, if, you, if your senses are so completely withdrawn, how do you know to stop the session? Right? And it's said, right, that you decide, ahead, the meditator decides ahead of time when they will stop. And they do, apparently. So, not all. So it's considered a fault not to. Not to stop. Yeah. Ah. They're trained more. They're about one of the terrible traditions. Ah. They train that from the get-go. Wow. So sometimes people don't. It's considered a fault. Ah. Yeah, so I know. It's just mind-boggling to me, right? I can be like, okay, in three hours. <laughs> I think, though, um, something that's much lower level that we can do is we can decide when we're going to wake up in the morning and wake oh, yeah. up. So it's in that, I think, in that practice kind of, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. 
well, sometimes I can decide when I'm going to wake up. Yeah. But yeah, telling the mind. You're right. You're right. Your focus is so strong at that point. You're like, okay, we're going to stop in four hours. <laughs> so, but this stage is not yet calm abiding because the meditator does not have special pliancy. So that's a feature that accompanies calm abiding. And we can see here in, what is it, diagram G, from the heart of the meditator, there's a little line coming out. Yeah, so that's leading towards uh, the further stages after stage 9. So which diagram do we have for that? What happens after stage 9? J. Yeah. So we see the flying monk. What do you think he could represent? <laughs> the powers. Yeah, I don't know. They don't go into a topic on the powers here. But I think he represents special pliancy and supreme, the attainment of the special pliancy that comes with supreme joy and bliss. So I'll talk a little bit about the special pliancy here. It's called. It's just called after the ninth stage. <laughs> Not yet, I think. Uh, I'll talk about the flying monk first. Yeah, but Jay, you're right. So the, the picture that shows you the actual attainment of serenity would be the monk riding the elephant. Yeah, so that's the actual attainment of serenity. Yeah. And then you see that he's riding back after that. Yeah, so we'll talk a bit about that later. So let's deal with the flying monk first. <laughs> So apparently, special pliancy is attained in stages. Right here, we have a serviceability such that the mind can be directed to any virtuous object as much as one likes. Yeah. It seems like the regular pliancy of the virtuous mental factors is you can direct your mind to one virtuous object. I don't know, that's my read of it. But at this stage, you can direct it to any virtuous object as much as you like. So the mind is just completely flexible. And so is the body. Yeah. So these are the stages, apparently. The first is that you get an omen of pliancy where you have a sense of a heavy brain. <laughs> I don't know what it could be like. Yeah. Then after that, you will attain mental pliancy first. So I think that's the one, right? Where you have warm hand on the shaved head. right? That's what it feels like to have mental pliancy. But here it says that because your mind is so familiar with concentration, um, dysfunctional winds leave from the crown and dysfunctional mental states are overcome. So your mind is very joyful. It engages with the object with a lot of happiness. There's no resistance around putting it on something virtuous. The mind's very light. Yeah. And then as a result of this mental pliancy, the, the winds flowing through the body too become very serviceable. So the next stage, you have physical pliancy. So when you have physical pliancy, you never feel tired while meditating. Right? It removes other unfavorable physical functionings. <laughs> Not sure what that is. but uh, So the winds that power the affliction subside. The winds of physical pliancy will pervade the body. And your body feels very light, like cotton. So I think that supports sitting for long periods to develop the, the levels of concentration. Um, so that's yeah, omen of pliancy, mental pliancy, physical pliancy. Then after that, you attain what's called the bliss of physical pliancy. You feel that your body melts into the meditation object. And then there's the bliss of mental pliancy. So here the mind's very happy, very buoyant. It says almost too much so. And it's marked by the feeling of a cool hand on a shaved head. That's what it could feel like. But pliancy is like flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. So it's here. It's the mind and the body are becoming completely flexible. You can do whatever you want with it. And then after that, there's the bliss of physical and mental pliancy also starts to cease. Yeah. I think probably also because the, if 
the bliss of mental pliancy might be too distracting. Yeah. So they also seize in various stages. And then after they seize, you ride the elephant. You have attained serenity. So that final picture of the monk riding back on the path, holding a sword, what do you think that could symbolize? The final, um, in, number, in J, right, you see there's three, right? First is the flying monk. Then we have this monk on the elephant. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think the last monk riding the elephant with a sword? Is this a union? Yeah. So there's a union of serenity and insight. The so insight represented by a sword here. Yeah. And from the monk's heart come two, um, in the colored ones, they are rainbows, right? And they represent afflictive obscurations and mental distortion that he's about to cut. Now, I don't know what mental distortion really means here. Does anyone have ideas? I tried looking it up. The Sanskrit is Uneya Varana. No? Okay, we can all puzzle over this. But yeah, apparently that's, that's the next stage. He's, he now has the union of serenity and insight and is about to start uh, overcoming the afflictive obscurations and mental distortion. I, you don't deal with the cognitive obscurations at this stage, do you? Or it's still the, just entering the path of seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so that's much later. I wondered if it was distorted attention. Anyhow, we'll have to look that up. Yeah. You need effort in Buddhism. That's why the fire is big <laughs> I wonder, yeah, probably. Yeah. Fire represents how much effort is needed, huh? Yeah. For the meditator. I'm surprised inside is even included in this drawing because this is just the drawing a representation of serenity. It always is, though, but maybe as a reminder that that's the purpose. <laughs> right? The pu- whole purpose of attaining serenity is to join it with insight, to cut those uh, obscurations and the mental distortions. So some signs of the attainment of serenity, just briefly to touch on them, they go through them in great detail in these texts. But here, you know, your mind and body are completely flexible and serviceable. You can immediately enter into meditative concentration. Your mind is very spacious. It abides firmly on the object. And there's a sense of great clarity. And it also affects your state post-meditation. It says, your mind may not be in the state of serenity, but afflictions don't arise as strongly and frequently. You have less craving for sense pleasure. The five hindrances don't come up anymore. And sleep itself becomes meditation. Right on. <laughs> yes! <laughs> meditation becomes fun. We'll get there, Venerable Thompson. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that. I found this attack quite helpful for myself to, to start putting a, some kind of image to these things that sound very uh, far off and like, I don't know, after stage, I mean, some idea of stage three maybe, right? Like, okay, I found the object, it stays for a while, but never losing it, four onwards, it sounds like a great mystery to me. So I just thought it's very kind of these masters to make tankas like this for us ordinary beings to have a sense of what could come along the way. When we get there and they become problems, we'll know what to do. So are there any thoughts, questions? Not that I can actually answer them. Do you have a name for 10? It wasn't listed. I mean, it's not one of the nine stages. It's usually just said after... After attaining, and it's kind of three stages in its. Uh, yeah, three pieces in there. Yeah. What was the name for one? One was placing the mind. Yeah. But I think in different texts there'll be many different translations too. I think here I was trying to use what Venerable Children was using in the 
in the teaching. In the monastic system, do you know if they're ever like tested on their level of concentration? Or, like, you know, if you study, you get the Geshe degree, are they expected to be able to attain serenity? at the end of their studies or is that measured in some way i don't think so i mean it's hard to measure yeah or but i do think they are tested on though at the signs and the things on the different stages like a lot of these texts will have there are three possibilities between this mental factor and this mental factor for example i'm like oh that's where it comes in so they'll be like oh you know how many possibilities between laxity and uh and lethargy yeah, so I'm guessing they must debate that on the debate ground. You're like mm, definition, yeah. So you can have fun with that, I guess. And and I guess it helps them to discern the the difference in terms of definitions and how they might come up in the mind. And so I'm guessing that's how they get tested. Yeah, is it integrated with their studies, like the meditation? Is it sort of, you know, yeah. do they get instruction from a like a meditation teacher? Or is it just, you know, intellectual, their training? Venerable Tapa can speak to that. I read the book um, by George Dreyfus, where he talks about his monastic experience. And just maybe some other people could add in from people reading maybe Geshe Raptons and Geshe Sopa's biographies. But my impression is, is that you... Um, focus on developing concentration after the study program, that you finish your program. People have teachers and take classes separate from their those five great texts that they go over. Like there's other, other things taught that people go to and they have their own teachers and some of them are meditating teachers and might, might teach them that. But the, the main focus Venable had mentioned before is after you finish. Then you go and you're supposed to do something with it while you're learning. And but that's just, you know, there, there's some, um, but uh, people like um, I also heard uh, Alan Wallace talk about this because he started this training. And he then, His Holiness, had um, all the monks and all the monastics and others go to a Goenka course. Many, many, many years ago, this was decades ago, and Alan Wallace's only own story was that he had been studying in the classical way, and he realized his mind from that course was just a complete wreck, and he wanted to spend more time meditating. And he talked to His Holiness, and he changed his whole course of his. He didn't. He he went back to studying, but he spent a lot of time then meditating. He kind of dropped out of the curriculum so he could meditate more with instruction. And then he went back to studies after that. I think people have different paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also heard stories of people being advised by their teachers to um, shift from their studies and go into retreat if they have a special aptitude for that. But also keep in mind that the studies that they do, like the debating, sharpens the mind in an incredible way so that when they go into meditation, they can probably achieve it pretty quickly because their minds are already trained from their studies and their debating. Yeah, I think I was early in studying the Lam Rim, I remember being very surprised how in the Theravada or Chinese Chan tradition, less focus on the study, a lot more on breath, 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 right? And 
it didn't that approach didn't necessarily work for me yeah so i just thought it depends on the disposition too i felt so appreciative like i said of this step by step like okay here are some stages here's what you'll see here's what you as a beginner need to work with like i didn't know i was being lazy or that laziness was coming up it's like oh that's the problem oh here are some antidotes okay yeah so that was helpful for my mind i thought and too you'll see in the yangeshi raptan's biography he does tremendous amount of debate. They would meditate during puja, I guess, and only towards the later part of his life he would go and do a retreat in the mountains and specific on very specific topics like three principal aspects of the path, trying to gain direct realization of renunciation and bodhicitta and emptiness. Yeah, I think so. In the book, he says one of his greatest regrets is that his realizations of these topics is not stronger. <laughs> right, so they have some direct sense, I guess. Like, oh, it's really shaping the mind. Yeah, I'm familiar with in the Sakya tradition some, at least how they train the Rinpoches, um, is they do a lot of three month retreat, deity retreats as they go along, even starting at young ages. I think I remember this right, but um, I think Geshe Palge said that s- many of the monasteries don't spend very much time on meditation and more on scholarly study um, and that their concentration might be a very short breathing meditation beforehand like even 21 breaths or 108 mm-hmm. breaths or something like that but then after he got his um, Geshe Larampa he went on a five year re- meditation retreat mm-hmm. so. Right. so I think you had a lot of focus more on being very clear about topics, knowing what can come up in the mind before engaging in long-term retreat, because a lot of stuff can come up, and if you don't have a good grounding in the Buddhist worldview, like Venerables, you could really go off, yeah, or start hallucinating and not know it. Yeah. Um, someone says, why is the fire back in stage 10? And you touched on it very briefly, but... Yeah, that wasn't explained in the descriptions of Tankas, but I think Venerable Pema had a good guess, yeah. That, that you, you do need effort still to unite serenity with insight. Yeah, it's not effortless here. You start to start to apply effort again to analyze the object, to right to to unite the two. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's what's happening there. Oh, I know. I was going to say. I think too in debate. As now as we're learning debate, it re- it requires a tremendous amount of concentration. You have to remember definitions. You go through long debates, and then you have to re- track them backwards and refute what the person just said. Like, how much concentration and memory does that require? Yeah, and I think in a lot of the textual debates, I don't know if they actually debate like this. Like, you can't even find the subject. It's so long. It's like an aria on the fifth stage of this attainment who has these 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 features. There's the whole subject. And then you have the predicate and the... Like Bill McGee told us for some of these debates he was translating, they would just mark the subject in red so they would even know what it was in Tibetan and where the rest of the syllogism uh, was going. Yeah, so I can barely imagine. Yeah, long debates about what Aryas are experiencing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, likewise for the different mental factors. Yeah, So we can see how these things fit together. I think if you ever met Geshe Sopa, it would kind of make sense, the whole, their whole program for some reason, because he's like a culmination of, their, of the Galupa program. Mm. And so if you think about how they start and what they're doing over the course of these years, and the mind doesn't change very fast. I don't know what he was like when he was younger. I've, I've seen some video of him 
at different ages and pictures, but just, I don't know, if you think about what kind of person he turned into and what his mental capabilities were, you could talk to some of us here who met him in his last years, it was pretty phenomenal. And I think that was a product of how, of this program and this way of study in this group of practice. And individual effort and meeting the right teacher and all that come into play as well. And I was just thinking of, I was reading the brief biography of Abbot of Sarah, Sarah May College, right? Geshe Lobsang Tarchin, I think. And he says he was a terrible student at first. <laughs> it was kind of comforting to read, like how he really was not engaged by the studies. Um, he was um, like slated to become an administrator monk, you know, like go with his teacher to handle finances and things like that. And it was through meeting a particular teacher. He met Pabongka Rinpoche. Yeah. And listened to the teachings on the Lam Rim. And he was like, this is it. Uh, and he went back and started to get very serious. And he told his own teacher, I will attain, I will get the Geshe degree. And everybody laughed at him like, you? So that fired him up. And he actually found ways to get out of the administrative position so he could focus on his studies and became very dedicated. And he said, uh, at some point, um, the, the people who were mocking him were, were the ones coming to ask him for advice on the debate ground, like, should we be debating this topic today? And he was like... <laughs> so it was like quite amazing to see. I mean, he was attributing it to the kindness of the teacher, Yeah, that he, there was that good connection, and suddenly the seeds of Dharma ripened for him, and he was totally engaged, and that helped him with his practice. Okay. I think we've... Uh, used our time <laughs> and we can just take a moment to rejoice that we've had this opportunity to look at what our minds are capable of and to appreciate just all the kindness of all our teachers and going back to the Buddha and to all these um, Indian masters who describe the stages of meditation the Tibetan masters who translated it put it into practice, synthesized it, all the way down to all these great teachers we've been speaking of, who we have incredible good fortune to have some contact with, and of course to Venerable Children, who gives us these teachings again and again, out of her great love and compassion for us. So we can dedicate that we too will actualize these stages to repay the kindness of our teachers and all sentient beings.